Hello and welcome to episode 55 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in Modern and Pioneer. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on a secure line from the Dad's World 5K Poker Championship, the godfather himself, Dave Harbarger. Raise all in. Fold. Something. Scoop. I don't know. Check. Bye. Also with us, Big Red himself, Zach Colhan. Dave, you you folded awfully quickly in that tournament. What are you going to do with that 5K you just lost? Uh, oh, it was a 5K entry? I uh, thought it was just win 5K. Dave, you are in so much trouble. In poker, we call it a buy-in. Yes. <laughs> in the industry, we call it a tease. Shane, our elusive prankster, is off this week, but we'll be back next week with some practical jokes that may just shock you. <laughs> On this week's episode, we take a look at all the Theros spoilers available to us as of Monday, January 6th, and go over cards we think have the chops for modern and or pioneer. We'll talk about what draw spell will capture Dave's imagination and inspire a think piece in Wired, which modal blue card will get me to dust off the old Delver, and which four mana CMC card will Zach declare undervalued and, and worth keeping, keeping an, an eye, eye on. on. It's almost like you guys rehearsed that. We're in sync. These answers and more in this week's Theros Picks to Click episode. But first, some housekeeping. We had a ton of people join during the holiday break. Nine folks decided to support the pod and become part of the Dive Down Nation. And I think I speak for all of us when I say we could not be more flattered and grateful. So big thanks and hello to Tyrone S., Burrito Champion, Michael M., Matt M., no relation, Josh S., Raphael R., Andy P., Magnus J., and Caleb W. Also, thanks to JK3382 for the very nice review on Apple Podcasts. Nine people is an okay amount of people. This is pretty cool. I know we had a week off, so hey. But still, thank you, everybody, for joining Down Dub Nation. For Dive Down, Dub Down, Dub Dub Nation. Especially around the holidays when everybody's cash flow is looking pretty lean. Thanks for reaching out. It's those Christmas bonuses, Dave. Ah, uh, that's true. They're back. That. Somehow we ended up on people's list for Giving Tuesday. I don't know how I registered that, as but... a nonprofit, so we're going to be in a lot of trouble really shortly. Oh, boy. Taxman, stay away. As always, if you'd like to support the show directly, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash the dive down. Or if you're on Magic the Gathering online, check out Mana Traders, a MTGO rental service to rent cards, decks, basically anything you need to play constructed on MTGO. And you can do that via the coupon code, the dive down to get 15% off your first three months of Mana Traders service. Now, with all that out of the way, let's jump over to Dave at this week's news desk. Well, Dateline, early 2020, it's time for us to talk about modern. It's time for us to get real about modern, everybody. Another sub in class, chair backwards, hat backwards, tie loosened. I have a hat and a tie on in this. Do I have a jacket on too? I, I can only imagine, like a sort of a corduroy overcoat. What kind of hat is it? Hmm. Cleveland. It's a baseball hat. It's a tripe hat. So I'm wearing a baseball hat <laughs> and a tie and a corduroy jacket. I am the coolest. Well, that's fun, right? Ever. Like, yeah. you, you know, you do teach English substitution sometimes, but mm-hmm. you have fun as well. Mm-hmm. I, I bring in a bunch of crossword puzzles for everybody to do. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, so it's time for us to talk about modern. We had a couple events this weekend. Uh, the first one that we're going to take a look at is the Magic Online Modern Finals. Now, this is another one of those impenetrably named tournaments on Magic Online that maybe you don't really know the significance of unless you follow Moto pretty closely. But the uh, the fact is, the Magic MTGO Modern Finals are an extremely high value and important tournament in the Mox series. It's a 40-player event that took a bunch of hoops to kind of jump through to get to. So Dave, when you say high value, do you mean important to the game in the meta or do you mean high pr- uh, prize payout? I think it is a has a good prize payout for a bunch of people who worked really hard to get entry to this tournament in the first place. Gotcha. So as we look at the list of players, we'll see that there are tons of familiar Magic Online screen names here. Basically, what I'm trying to get to with this is that there are, uh, it's a room full of killers who are super interested in playing the best decks. And so I think we can take a lot of of instruction from the way that they approached the modern metagame at this point, because they had a lot of incentive to do really well. I also think that the winner of this event gets an invite to the next player's tour. So there's a lot on the line. I mean, it's it's almost like a road path to professional MTG play. Yeah, and you also get, uh, you get to the Mox Championship, which is an in-person tournament in Seattle which is where 24 players compete for their share of a huge prize purse. And, you know, this is like the tournament where Reed Duke originally made his name as a well-known Magic player, and then he translated that into the Paper Pro Tour from there. So if you think about it that way, there's a lot of people who really care about this tournament. And so let's see about the meta that they put together to, uh, to compete against each other. So first, we should say congratulations to Peppy Team for taking down the tournament with Simic Urza. Simic Urza. They were the number one seed going into the top eight and finish it off with not even a single loss in the top eight. Hmm. Hmm. Cool. Hmm. Anybody surprised by that? I don't want to talk about it. I'm sure they played mirror matches, so it's not like it's that the deck is perhaps broken. They had to make some choices to navigate those matches. True. How many mirror matches do we think they faced? Well, let's take a look at the the rest of the meta. So the rest of the top eight... Uh, was Toast XP, which is who is a well-known player as well, on Sultai Urza. Um, you know, a little bit of Simic, but two main deck Abrupt Decay and sideboarded in Assassin's Trophy and Fatal Push. Uh, Fraddle Rock on Eldrazi Tron. Jesse Samic on Jeskai Ascendancy Urza. Mental Misstep on Simic Urza. I Be True on Titan Shift with a, a classic version of that with no Oko and only a single Field of the Dead, but with four, four main deck Veil of Summers. <laughs> <laughs> Doom Switch on Band Control and Icteridae on Devoted Druid Combo with Karn the Great Creator and Teferi Time Raveler, but also with Oko. How's that for a top eight, everybody? That's uh, a decent amount of blue. A lot of blue. My favorite color in Magic. A lot of blue and a lot of green. I'm going to keep pointing back to that. Mm-hmm. I have two exciting thoughts. One, um, Icteridid or Icteridae are like small hummingbird-like birds. Just looked it up, so that's fun. They're a little burb. Um, second, more real thing. This top eight reminds me of the top eights we saw when Hogak was a problem, but I do not feel it is a foregone conclusion that some of these cards are going to go. People feel like they have to. But I feel like with Hogak, it was so clear that like, this is done. We hate this. This is going on. But here it's just like, there's a lot of it and this is happening. Yeah. So why don't we take a look at the way that this kind of extended out from the, the top eight? 
So the in the decks that had more than one copy in the top 32, because that's kind of where we what we have data to, seven of the decks of the top 32 were Simic or Saltai Urza. Four of the top 32 were, were Eldrazi Tron. Three of the top 32 were Bant or Blue-White Control. And then from there, we had two each of Titan-based decks, Devoted Druid, Shadow, Dredge, and Stoneblade. Stoneblade making a little bit of a of an appearance here. Pretty interesting. Probably Bant Stoneblade playing Oko. Well, it's funny you should say that because the truth is, if you look at where that card was showing up, half of the top 32 was running Oko with an average of 3.6 copies per deck in the 16 decks that were running Oko. Average almost a playset. <laughs> yeah, it, average. Of, that means what? That two people were running three and the rest were all running four? I mean... God, yeah, seems good. Shane, who's not here tonight, did that math for us. He couldn't. He couldn't do the round. He couldn't round it into human numbers, though. Shane is not a cyborg. I hate that you keep insinuating this. He's definitely a human boy. Uh, so Oko was actually the most played card overall, with fifty-eight copies in the top thirty-two. Stan, Zach, reactions. I just see shatter pauses on your faces right now. Big shrug. Not surprised. Yeah, I mean. Like people ask me about Oko, like when I, when I talk to friends, talk to people online, like, how do you feel about it? And it's just like, how do you want me to feel about it? Like, it's <laughs> terrible. It's awful. Like, it, it's hard to have like constructive conversation about it at this point, I feel like, because I, I feel the way it is. It's everywhere. I've hated it since Oko Watch 2019, which is now a year in the past, turns out. But I don't, I don't know. think I don't it's a year. It. Well, you know, time is a flat circle. So. Yeah, that's right. I'd like to make a caveat to one of my previous statements. One of the Stoneforge decks is Bant. The other one, I think this is Naya, because it's running a single Elspeth Knight Errant and two Renin Six, along with Birds of Paradise, Knight of Reliquary, etc. So it's kind of like a Naya value deck with Stoneforge Mystic in there. That's awesome. I, we actually talked about the uh, deck kind of like this, I think like three months ago, when we were looking at, at Stoneblade decks. So it's cool to see that Stone pop up blood. again. Yeah. Um, the next card that was super interesting and very pervasive is Vela Summer, which was in 20 decks for a total of 47 copies. 47 copies was the second most played card overall behind Oko. And then one quarter of the decks were Urza decks overall, really, if you if you uh, break everything down. Great. So Veil of Summer makes sense to me. The card is a one mana cryptic command very often. <laughs> and if you are running Oko in half of the decks, you're already in Veil of Summer colors. So it feels to me like there's no cost to playing Veil of Summer. It's like you have every incentive to do so. For instance, if Oko, let's say, is removed from the format, or for whatever reason, Oko decks kind of start to shrink in their meta share, perhaps then we'll see a little bit less Veil of Summer, you know, or, or green decks in general. Zach? Uh, I... I don't know. Podcast listeners, you deserve better than this. Let's pep it up a little bit. I'm going to raise my energy. I just think modern's fundamentally broken at a deep level, and I don't know what to do about it. <laughs> Zach, I don't think you're alone in that thinking. I, I'm not saying that I specifically, I may or may not agree with you, but a lot of Twitter definitely agrees with you. Yeah, me. and like... When, when I play my LGS and I don't see Oko, I have fun and it's great. And even if I go 1-3 or whatever, I had fun and like I lost because of, you know, luck or I misplayed or whatever. When when I play online and I play against an Oko deck, it just feels like, okay, if I win, it's miraculous. Like something has occurred, some sort of divine intervention, not the magic card, but literal divine intervention has occurred to a degree where I am winning the game. 
I hate it so much. I hate it so much. Something has to happen. How how often do you think that you see it show up at the LGS? By the way, once every other time. There's a, there's a few people. Um, there there's a person that had it in their deck but didn't get to play it before I, I blood moon them. So that happens. But in general, there's like you know maybe two or three people at either LGS I play at that have Oko in their deck. Right. I, I, Zach, do you agree that anytime you go to any of the shops where you and I play? There's at least one Oko player in the room. You just may or may not be paired up against them. Oh, exactly, exactly. And like, I think the meta is obviously a little more diverse at an LGS than online, which maybe sounds weird, but I feel like there's a lot more like fun homebrew stuff and fun, fun, quote unquote. While online, I see like a lot of Death Shadow. I see a lot of Tron. I rarely in League see non-meta decks anymore, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see what's kind of happened to Magic Online over the last year as well, because I feel like the advent of rental services have sort of really led to that change where it's like, you can just switch to whatever meta deck you want all the time. And like, I'm not trying to say that's a bad thing. Cause I definitely partake in that too. I'm part of the problem. Yeah. I'm always part of the problem, but the, uh, the whole environment online has become a lot spikier. I think even among people who are, you know, casual spikes like us, um, there's not as many people with pet decks anymore. They switch to other things. And I just feel like 2019, this second half of 2019 has really kind of homogenized the meta in modern in a lot of ways. Um, I have a thought. It would be tagged as controversial if I tweeted it out. Did Modern Horizons kill pet decks? And uh, I thought it would boost them up to new heights and elevate them, but I think the sheer power of it has forced those decks out and forced people to sort of... Because, like, I can't play Scred anymore without feeling like I'm a big dum-dum. I don't think so. <gasps> to be quite honest, because if we look at some of the most problematic players in the format, it's not Modern Horizon cards, with the exception of Urza. Yeah, you know, Oka, Veil of Summer, um, Mox Opal. Like, well, wait, you don't think Astrolabe is a huge problem? I mean, I don't think Astrolabe is as big of a problem as some of these other cards, although it's one of the best enablers that there is for Urza itself. And also, unfortunately, it makes Blood Moon terrible. But so, Zach, RIP, you don't even play Blood Moon anymore. I play Magus of the Moon because it's it's the only way to do what I want to do anymore. I'm like Obi-Wan Kenobi. This is my tattooing. And, and here's the other point to your comment about pet decks. I think it was in the modern challenge from this weekend. Slivers made top 32. Hmm. I rest my case. Format's fine. <laughs> no, no, no. Now I'm going to come back at you with, with, the, uh, with a little bit of anecdotal data about SCG, the SCG Open Columbus, which was Team Modern. And... I don't have a complete number here, but let me read some of the stats from the day two metagame to you. 10% of decks were Sultai Urza. 9% of decks were Simic Urza. 7% of decks were Teamer Urza. This is reading from a post by uh, Clarostorix on Reddit, but yeah, the data probably came from Nick Miller. And then 2% were Bant Urza and 2% were Four Color Urza. So we have, <laughs> I don't know, what does that add up to? Like, 30% of no, this is good. This is what I want to do. I want to play fry main board. That's where I want to be in modern okay. fry. It's just all fry and Vela summer main board all the time. <laughs> there were more decks. I'm, I'm looking at the same data. What you're not talking about are the four mono green Tron decks, three amulet Titan, three humans, Eldrazi Tron infect two gift storm players and two mono red prowess players. So there is still diversity in the meta. It's just homogenizing around this suite of cards that are kind of taking over the format 
I'm I'm sorry, Stan. It, is your defense that there's not just one deck, and other decks can exist in numbers of one to two? I'm not defending anything. I'm just challenging David for skewing the. <laughs> my bad. My bad. I'll, I'll sit out of this. For I'm spinning the data. By the way, that <laughs> you know, my dad was a politician. It's all about the spin, guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is thirty percent Urza decks. By the way, in in the day two meta in Columbus. Um, and I think that the ultimate joke for me anyway was this weekend when I saw uh, Brian Gottlieb post up a hot new deck that he wanted everybody to pay attention to on Twitter. And uh, that deck was Urza Titan. Urza Titan. And what could that even look like? Could you even imagine what that could look like? Let me tell you what it looks like. <laughs> it is four Everflowing Chalice, four Mox Opal. Four Gilded Goose, four Arkham's Astrolabe, four Explorer, three Oko, four Urza, four Primeval Titan, and one Engineered Explosives. There are three Field of the Dead in this deck, along with things like Castle Garenbrig, Cavernous Souls, yada, yada, yada. Um, so we're at this point now where we just take all the stuff, put it together in one deck, and kind of see what happens. I know yeah. this was a meme deck that he posted, but... Well, was it? So at 2.50 p.m. Sunday afternoon, Brian tweets this list and writes, for when you are ready to stop pretending like there are other playable cards in Modern, I give you Urza Titan. I think about two hours later or so at 5.30, one of my favorite streamers, the Pen Sword, posts a tweet saying, I'm playing Blue Moon with Karn and I just played against a deck running Urza Oko Titan Cavern Explorer and I lost horribly. And in fact, based on a screenshot that Brian shared, it does look like Jacob, the pen sword, played against Brian Gottlieb. No, really? Yeah. So it wasn't <laughs> necessarily that Brian's deck just suddenly blew up on Sunday afternoon. They were paired up against each other. That's hilarious. Mm-hmm. But I think there's some commentary here, right, about this package in Brian's deck and the format we're looking at in these tournaments where it's like, play Urza, play Oko, play Arkham's Astrolabe. And I guess if you can fit Titan or other powerful cards, you're going to be A-OK. Yeah. I mean, the pen sword said in his tweet also, don't try like, let modern die, basically. Yeah. Which I, I don't think he believes that. He loves Snapcaster Rage and Lightning Bolt too much. Yeah. I don't know. Look, I, I feel like <laughs> Zach is losing it. It's... I don't agree, but I agree, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just, I mean, the thing is, like, you guys are still having fun when you go to the store for the most part, right? I mean, you don't see half the players playing Oko. God, I wish we could bleep swears on this show. What I wouldn't give. No, but for real, like, is are we in this kind of situation where it's kind of like KCI, where these these decks are destroying the competitive metagame, but the LGS metagame is reasonably safe? So I think it's safe only for so long. And I, earlier, I brought up the Hogak comparison and about how, you know, reading through the top eight and discussing the meta share, it, it's a reminder of doing that on the show. But it's not quite the same as Hogak because Hogak was a distinct deck or maybe two to three decks if you want to push it. While this is just a package you put into decks, right? So this isn't an archetype. I'm a graveyard, aggressive, dredge-esque Hogak deck. This is, I can play blue and green, so I get to play Oko. I get to play Astrolabe. Why not run Urza? Why not run Titan? Why not run Mana Ramp? Like, yeah. this isn't a style of deck that has a big commitment. You get to do this, then go, what's my flair? Hornet Queen, why not, right? Yeah. So, like, I think that 
I mean, it's a doomsday scenario where everyone in your LGS has 20 Yokos, right? I don't think it's that. But I think that we will just see the proliferation of these good cards and these good mid-range strategies just creep up over time. Also, by the way, I mean, it's it's even beyond that. Jund is now playing Oko. And I've been playing Oko in say four, say four the color name. shadow. I won't say it. Moist. Jund. <laughs> no. Ugh. I love how much people hate the word moist. It's just something that's kind of damp. That's all it means. Salky. All right. Two two comments. First, I want to start with Zach's point, which I totally agree with, that this is different than Hogak, because unlike Hogak, where you could, you know, in theory, run for ley line, and sometimes that'll get you there against the deck, you can't run a specific silver bullet hate piece against, you know, this genre of strategy, which is just like a package of good blue-green cards. Well, doesn't Fry kill Oko? No. Noko. Um. Fry does kill Urza, but that's not enough. Yeah, it doesn't kill Titan. Urza has already gone too far. I, and then, Dave, to your point, I think that's always going to be the case. You know, in the era of KCI, in the era of Hogak, there was sometimes like one or two players like playing the top deck when Is It Phoenix was a deck. Like I was the Is It Phoenix player, but it was still LGS has still had the identity that I've always experienced, which is. People are showing up to play what they want, and they're showing up to the LGS to have fun and not necessarily to be spiky tournament grinders. So that's why strategies like Delver or Niv-Mizzet or Grixis Shadow, whatever, they still flourish in these environments. I think the trouble is people at the LGS level look to tournament results for inspiration. And when you're getting less variety in your results and less variety for inspiration, that's when I think people start to get kind of disenfranchised and and maybe less motivated to even participate at the LGS level. Do you feel like that's been true for the the two of you? Because, I mean, as you know, I don't really participate in LGSs, but are you guys still going out and playing modern as much as you usually do? I know it's been the holidays, so it's a little bit of a weird question, but more than ever. I actually got to play modern in Hawaii while I was there on vacation. I got to play at Dub Planet, shots out, had a good time there. But yeah, I mean... Like I said, if I don't see Oko, I like modern and I have fun. Like, even if I'm losing to, like, affinity turn two nonsense or, like, you know, sometimes Storm can go off really quick on turn three. I don't love that, but that's that's part of modern, right? I've learned to accept that as part of, like, the big thing of, like, sometimes there's these decks that do this thing. And if you aren't smart and don't keep a good hand, you get run over. This doesn't feel like I don't want these cards in my family. I don't want this to be part of the community I'm a part of. It feels and like... There'll be times that the LGS or someone's like, hey, you run an Oko? And someone goes, oh, no, I don't like that card. So, like, like I mentioned, like, the EV at these stores isn't super, super high to a point where you're, like, incentivized to just spike it, right? So if you want to have fun in your LGS, some people don't run Oko. Like, it's it's at that level of just, I don't have to say, Dave, I'm dying. Passive protest. They're like, <laughs> yeah, I'd prefer not to. Yeah, a real black armband for sure. It's Bartleby the Oko going on over here. I prefer not to. I haven't been playing at the LGS quite as much as I used to. I play online a little bit more than I used to, but also I just got a PlayStation 4. So He's a gamer now, folks. Red Dead Redemption. Is this Red Dead Redemption 1 or the second one? It's the second one. Ah, man. I would love to play that. I loved the first one so much, but I just do not have time. Why? Is it because you have two children and a job and a podcast and a wife? And a dog. Yeah, kind of. And, you know, I ta- I spent most of my holiday break retiling my kitchen. Oh, that sounds fun. David looked nice. Hey, thank you so much. You guys were over last night. I appreciate the compliment. Um, so so wh- what are we doing from here? 
we got we got a Magic Fest coming up this weekend. Magic Fest Austin is on the tenth. Will be the day after this podcast comes out, and I believe that the the main event of Magic Fest Austin is Modern. What's going to happen there? Called shots. I mean, short of an emergency ban before this episode comes out, Oko will probably be in the first place deck and will definitely be in multiple copies of the top eight. Could you imagine they moved the new banning format and then like on a Thursday ban Oko? I think if it doesn't happen on Tuesday, it's not happening. Well, they they said that the banned announcements will always come on Mondays. So we've all, we've already missed the window here. I mean, unfortunately, this just feels like what Dallas was like over the summer um, when Hogak was legal, where we all kind of just have to shrug, except that the format of the tournament is kind of just spoiled, soiled, if you will. And we, I mean, to answer your question, what do we do? I don't think there's anything we can do but wait, either for Watsi to intervene or some new card to solve the problem. But I think the situation is so dire that it would take the former for actual positive change. I don't know. Maybe modern is beyond saving. What makes modern different from legacy in that it feels like the discourse surrounding modern is like, let it die. It's beyond saving. I hate this format. Is it just because the player base is so much bigger? I think it's much bigger. And I think that like it's easier to get into than legacy because of no reserve list. And I think that it's it's in this weird thing right now where it's legacy and modern are different and pioneer and modern are different. And modern definitely has this unique identity that I feel like has sort of not been lost, but has been shifted to the format where like, oh, th- you do this style of broken stuff here instead of uh, in legacy. So I feel like the sentiment of let it die is sort of just like, it's going to take a lot to sort of get it right, I think. Like, I think they have to ban more than one card, in my opinion. And everyone knows I love bans, so take that with a grain of salt. But I think Modern needs, like, a hammer taken to it in a big way, and, like, we'll see what happens, but I think they need to bang out some dents big time. And I think if you don't, and you let Modern get this powerful, the line between it and Legacy blurs to a weird degree. Reserve list aside, I mean in power level, to where you're doing very powerful things in Legacy, but also very powerful things in Modern, and there's still a gap, but the more the gap shrinks, the less I want to play Modern. I mean, keep in mind that Modern was the most popular format, both in viewership and in the people people playing it and all kinds of other metrics, at, as recent as probably five months ago. We, we don't really know what's going on right now because it's hard for us to tell without um, without kind of like viewer data from Grand Prix and things like that. We don't really have access to that anymore. But it definitely feels to me like there's a huge group of people that are pretty upset about this right now. If it really And if it really is Magic's most popular competitive format, I feel like they have to do something to try to fix it sooner rather than later. And I don't know how many of these cards really need to go. I mean, people say things from like, you know, we're getting people saying that they think Veil of Summer should be banned. I, that feels like a bridge too far to me personally. But um, I do think that probably Oko needs to go ultimately. I mean, there's just almost no way for me to wrap my brain around it staying. And I still wonder about Mox Opal. Yeah, Dave. I mean, there's it just there's so many people on the watch list, right? Like the, the rogues gallery, as Shane would say, is just enormous. So maybe a way we can end the breakdown and sort of leave our listeners with a little bit of food for thought. At the end of this, at the end of the day, when this dark time is over, how many cards are banned? Is it no cards are banned and the dark time becomes the new normal and we just see an acceleration of modern's power level? Or do a few things get knocked out and we see the sort of totem pole change? 
Well, I think you heard my answer a minute ago. So I think it's going to be two cards get banned as a result of this whole episode. Zach, what do you think? Five, no questions. I agree that it's two, but rather than Mox Opal, I think it's Oko and Urza. And there you have it, folks. There's our wild speculation for this week's breakdown. We provided some evidence, but perhaps not where you wanted it. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we are diving into the new cards from Theros. I don't even remember what the set is called. I just know where it takes place. Theros, Beyond Death. Beyond Death. So whenever a new set comes out, we all put on our reading glasses. We open up Mythic Spoiler, Scryfall, two windows up simultaneously, and try to pour over as many cards as we possibly can and really elevate our cards per second rate of our eyeballs. And we have got two eyeballs, everyone on the podcast, and sometimes we can read two cards at once. My CPS is actually at three right now. So, And whenever a new set comes out, each of us individually, because we have our own unique MTG preferences and play styles, we all kind of look out for certain things that we wish existed or we want more copies of or maybe more efficient versions of. So before we go through our specific picks to click this episode, I'm curious, what kind of cards are you on the lookout for in general right now? Well, I think it's interesting because there's a couple of, you know, given that we are focused on Pioneer and Modern, there's some very specific needs on my mind for both of those formats. But the number one that I think would help out both formats is some kind of efficient and useful planeswalker removal. And I think it's a really hard design challenge, but I'd love to see a design that surprises me in some way because, you know, how high loyalty and low CMC planeswalkers are right now makes it really hard for red removal to keep up. It makes it hard for creatures to attack into them. But at the same time, focused planeswalker removal is kind of a, a, a terrible thing to run against a deck that doesn't have planeswalkers. So I think that that's what I'm really looking to see what can happen so that we can have a card that is still efficient and main deckable, but not wildly overpowered. Quick question for you, Dave. When you talk about how loyalty goes up and CMC goes down, are we specifically talking about Oko? And would you still be on the lookout for that if Oko just didn't exist? Well, I mean, I think there's some... Oko is certainly the poster child, but also the Royal Scions are pretty tough to deal with. Uh, Nissa Who Shakes the World is pretty tough to deal with because of high loyalty and because it gets ramped into. There's just a lot of Planeswalkers. I mean, so many Planeswalkers have been added in the last year, and we've talked about that a bunch of times, and they all get pretty big pretty fast. So in Pioneer, you know we really need access to something that's a little bit faster to get rid of them. And in modern, we need access to something that's a little more main deckable to get rid of them in my mind. So that's the number one thing on my wish list when I'm just thinking about cards I would love to see in a set for either format. Yeah, for me, I'm keeping an eye out for powerful or impactful three drops specifically, um, especially cards that can be ramped off from a Llanowar Elf style effect. I think what motivates this POV is that Llanowar Elves and Elvish Mystics, as long as they're legal in Pioneer, I think that rampable three drops that you can cast on turn two will remain a really important part of the format. So maybe staying ahead of the curve and identifying what that powerful three drop is might be something that could help me as a player and some of our listeners. Do you think those even fit into modern 
potentially, or are you mostly just thinking about Pioneer because it's just kind of what's on your mind at the moment? I think um, it's a little easier to identify a powerful three drop in Pioneer than in Modern because something like Steel Leaf Champion, you know, if this were to be printed in Theros, it would scream Pioneer in a way that I don't think we would necessarily be quite as um, optimistic about its role in Modern. For sure. Yeah. Stand to Yes and You. As we all know, 3CMC is my favorite CMC, and I love Impactful 3-Drops too. Magus of the Moon, Bonecrusher Giant, all the Rabble effects. So totally agree. My Landwar Elves is a Simeon Spirit Guide, but in general, getting out a 3-Drop on turn 2 is something I like to do as well. But what I'm looking for more individually is what we're calling now Punisher effects, which is different than the original Punisher effects, but those are bad anyway. But more modern day Punisher effects. I'm doing quotations with my fingers. You can't see it's an an audio medium. Do it closer to the microphone and then our listeners can hear your fingers. Punisher effects. I mean, you can definitely hear them. It's kind of like when someone says that you should smile when you talk. Punisher effects are things like uh, Eidolon of the Great Revel, Leyline Combustion, the new Bonecrusher Giant. When you try to interact or cast spells, cards that damage you. I'm really interested in a red plan in modern nowadays where I throw my things out and say, try to stop me. So more ways that punish my opponent for trying to stop me is things I'm looking for. But that's sort of modern in general. You know, I'm playing Punisher decks across formats, but let's talk about Pioneer specifically. So moving away from in general cool cards, what's Pioneer specific things we want to see? I have a very clear answer for this. I want a more efficient two CMC counter spell than Quench. Even if it's Mana Leak, I think that'd be great. But something like Remand probably would make me happier. Stan, that's wild because I, too, want a 2-CMC card. I think that Pioneer is really lacking a solid 2-mana Mana Rock. I've talked about this before in the podcast. There's a couple options that are questionable at best and unplayable at worst. And I think it would open up more mid-range strategies. I know there's a bunch of popular mid-range decks. There's a red one right now. But I like my uh, red mid-range to have more mana rocks and be a little grindier. So I'd just love to see what other decks, uh, you know, not even Mind Stone, some other mana rock that you can play on turn two and then play a four drop on turn three could do. I mean, in my mind, I'm I'm looking for more efficient creature removal for Pioneer. That's the number one thing that's on my mind most of the time when I'm playing matches of Pioneer is... Do I have access to an efficient piece of removal? What happens if I use my removal here? Because I know I don't have that many more copies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I would love, for example, to see if we could get something in between Chain to the Rocks and Path to Exile for white to help (laughs) white be better. I mean, there's got to be some design space in there. I know that there's a card that's been floating around recently called Isolate that was in M19 that I've seen getting some play. Uh, I think there's some other design space out there that I would love to see, you know, not specifically to help white, but I think white's the one that feels like it's hurting the most for that cheap removal. And then finally, you know, I think that we just wanted to talk a little bit about our wish lists for what is on our minds about for modern. And I'll start. I think that given where modern is right now, how powerful it is that everything is just kind of about like, what are you breaking uh, that you're trying to break before your opponent can break something? I think that the thing that I'm looking for as far as fits into modern goes are just cheap cards that are abusable, right? Things that do really powerful effects that I can work backwards to see if there's some kind of plan to build a new deck around or to help bolster the strength of a deck that's already out there. Honestly, I want Colligan's Command, but in it Colors, 
So something that's <laughs> three CMC or less that includes red and blue pips that get me card advantage. I would, however, settle for a new one mana cantrip. Wow. New one mana cantrip, I think, would be kind of revolutionary because it would be in Pioneer as well. It, it, in yeah. blue. I, I, sh- I should specify. I, I want it for blue. Right. I, I'm not talking about Veil of Summer. Totally. Totally understand. Better than Opt. Worse than Ponder. Serum Visions. Two. <laughs> That's funny. I like the I like that you're holding out for uh, Karanos's command too. Like I'm 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 up for that Ooh, as well. K Command two. K Command the sequel. I mean, in modern right now, I'm looking for red ways or colorless ways to make card advantage, and you know that's few and far between because card advantage, as we know, is the name of the game. But beyond that, a better fry, maybe like a module, a braid module. Module, a Moodle of Braid that can hit walkers along damaging something or along those lines. I don't know what that have to cost. I'm not trying to speculate on a card. I just need a way to interact with walkers that isn't Pithing Needle, in yeah. my opinion. I've been throwing around a card design lately. Toss it to me, Dave. I think I've talked to you about this, Sam, but I'm not sure Zach saw it. What do you think about uh, red, a single red for an instant? A this is not modern power level, but maybe it's pioneer power level. That's three damage to target creature or planeswalker. Oh, bad bolt, like you were calling it, right? Yeah. <sighs> I feel like it has to scale up because three to a walker for one still feels like a paltry sum. Mm-hmm. That's rough if that's true. I by the way, I maybe it is true. Oh, it's true. Well, it's definitely true. I mean, the era of Liliana the Veil and Jason the Mind Sculptor is is foregone. Yeah, especially in Pioneer. <laughs> Rest in peace. We heard the new year. We're talking about modern here, though. And in modern. What are we talking about anymore? They'll be back once Oko's gone, right? We'll get our Jace. We'll get our Lily back. Yeah, maybe. They're never coming home, Dave. There's no farm upstate. Oh, no. So those are the type of cards and the type of effects that we would love. So now let's take a quick minute and refresh our listeners. Perhaps we have some new listeners who haven't heard our previous picks to click on how we evaluate cards here. And a lot of this is based on learning we've heard from other podcasts articles playing for many years uh in the case of david he was working with richard garfield on inventing this game did you know that i applied to work at wizards actually dude who hasn't i've applied i got an uh i got an interview oh i didn't get that that was 10 years ago and uh yeah did not happen Oh, probably for the best. I don't think you could have been on this podcast if you were an employee of Wizards, maybe as a guest at best. It's totally true. So many NDAs, no Dave agreement. So when we're evaluating cards on the dive down for their fit, specifically into modern, but to a certain extent into pioneer as well, you know, um, we're looking at three major factors. Those three filters basically are cost, power level, and fit. So cost is the biggest one for modern, but it's also the biggest one for pioneer, I think, at this point, because what you really want to do for modern is find spells that cost as little as possible, right? When you're doing a filter on a on a, um, a spoiler, a card that is one CMC is more likely to make an impact in modern than anything else. And so that's worth keeping an eye on. A couple of episodes ago, we talked about the composition of casting costs in modern, and we uh, kind of emphasized again that more than half of the most popular cards in modern cost one or zero mana. That's not going to change anytime soon, no matter what gets banned. So just something to keep in mind. On the flip side, for Pioneer, 
Um, there's a lot of opportunity for any impactful one CMC spell to make a, f- a splash because that format has a much wider distribution of casting costs right now. And so there's opportunity for one mana spells to really stand out as being very powerful in the format as a result of that. So when we look at spells, we're thinking about zero or one mana. With creatures, we're looking at probably one or two mana. And with planeswalkers, the threshold is still fortunately three mana. Although there's a lot more of those around these days than there used to be. (laughs) So at any rate, the first thing we want are cheap cards, right? That's the first filter you got to get through. The second one is power level. It's the easiest to see on a card, but it's the hardest to get right in isolation, right? So is a card something new, powerful? Is it able to warp a game around it? That can be a mechanic that fulfills that role, or it can be a specific card, or it can be a combination of both. And so past examples, and we've talked about these on other episodes, include things like Arclight Phoenix, which had an effect where it brought itself out of out of uh, back into play from the graveyard. Emrakul to Fairy 3, all of these things are effects that maybe we didn't realize right away, but that once you actually sit down and look at them, you see why the thing that they do is so, so powerful. And then the last thing is fit. Where is a card going to go? And there's a few different ways to think about that. The first one is redundancy. So with redundancy, we're talking about a either exact reprint, a functional reprint, or a very similar effect. So a personal example and a way to think about this is a Legion war boss is a redundant Goblin Rabble Master. And that is what has allowed sort of these mid-range red decks to really flourish in more formats because you have more consistent access to these goblins. It could also be things like another cantrip, another similar removal spell, maybe another tutor, etc., etc. Something that allows a deck to go from four to seven, eight copies is going to create more consistency and a more reliable deck. Another part of this is unique effects, and this is something that's a little harder to gauge at first similar to power level, but say you you have a deck and it's missing something like the ability to discard two cards to draw three. You know, not that's a real card or anything, but when you have this unique interesting effect, all of a sudden you open up the gates more where, oh, this is less week my engine needed, and it's not, you know, copies of a card five through eight, but it's a similar powerful effect or is a, a you know, a card advantage effect. So now I have eight pieces of card advantage in different ways. And so that's the way that we tend to think about cards that we want to highlight from a spoiler over here is power level, cost, fit. So now let's dive in to our picks to click. Yeah, enough appetizers. It's time to talk about some real cards. Yeah, we'll probably go around the horn twice because we've each identified two cards that we want to talk about. And Lord knows no one wants to hear me speak for 15 minutes straight. Well, don't say no one. Well, thank you for flattering me, Zach. How about you kick us off? Me? 15 minutes straight? Well, if you insist. So a card that I'm excited about, and maybe what I'll do is I'll just read the text out loud and then get both of you to respond before I even say anything. I like that. I like this a lot. So this is Tectonic Giant, two red red. That's four mana total for a three four creature, Elemental Giant. Whenever Tectonic Giant, here known as TG, attacks or becomes a target of a spell an opponent controls, choose one. TG deals three damage to each opponent, or exile the top two cards of your library. Choose one of them. Until the end of your next turn, you may play that card. So Stan, what do you think? I kind of like that second exile effect, to be honest, more than the first one, though... The first one seems to me almost like a Punisher effect, um, whereas the second one gets you card advantage, theoretically. Um, and, and I like that ability. And the fact that you get to choose which one you want, I think is really appealing. 
It makes me wonder when you're ever going to pick three damage, unless it's to kill your opponent or maybe put them to three life so you can finish them off with a bolt. But if your opponent is ever, you know, a bolt away from dying, they're never going to target the giant. They'll always just chump block it. But as we noted, this triggers on attack as well, not damage. So when this swings, you get to do one of these two things. Oh, totally. Attacks or becomes a target of a spell in opponent controls. That's a lot of text. It's a lot of power. I think this is a really cool and powerful card and definitely the card I knew Zach was going to talk about. No question. What? Well, Zach, I'm curious to hear which format you think this is a better fit for. So I think that off the bat, I am more hopeful for this in Pioneer. Four mana is less of a deal than it is in Modern. And in the Modern deck I'm running right now, I don't have any four drops. Like seriously, no four drops. I have two Ember Cleaves. Those are a six drop. I'm not casting it for six, but typically it's three. But Modern, I'm less sure about this. The Punisher Prison build I'm running really couldn't support this. Or maybe it could with some moving around. I'd have to test it. Like I said, attack trigger is way better than a damage trigger. But in Pioneer, I've had a lot of issues with my three drop slot, not as much my four drop slot. And I think that turn two Eidolon into turn three, you know, Bone Crusher if you want to, or turn two Stomp, Bone Crusher into this on turn four, your opponent has to make a lot of tough decisions, right? And the fact that you have until your next turn and you get to play it, which means you can choose a land if you need to. There's just a lot of utility here. Getting a mini life the stage every turn is super cool for me. But I think Pioneer's a little safer. Would not be surprised to see this in Modern. I don't think it's a shoe out there or anything instead of a shoe in, a kick out, a boot out. <laughs> but I think in Pioneer, this has a lot of what it needs to get there. And four toughness is a lot. It's going to win a lot of combats and hard to remove. So if your opponent has to double spell to remove it, either you deal six, you get too many light up the stages, light up the carousel. What's, what's a mini stage? What's a tiny Black stage? box. Light up the black box. So yeah, I, I think it has a lot of potential. And like if an opponent Oko's it, you know, that's life, but not in Pioneer, baby. One of the things that I think is cool about this compared to something like Risk Factor, which is actually the first card it reminded me of, is that you get to choose which one you do. Your opponent doesn't have to choose. Whichever one is better for them or, or less bad. Risk factor is part of the old uh, sort of Punisher style effects where it was, I feel like it's a joke because you're punishing yourself by getting your opponent to choose one. These The new Punisher, or as we'll call it, the new Punisher, is really just, I feel like the option of, hey, like you don't get a choice here. If you want to target, you take damage. Like the choice is do you target or not? Not... Well, do you want to give me cards? You don't want to take damage. Like you don't get to choose what's least bad for you. Either you interact or you don't. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's interesting that the four mana spot is kind of crowded in the pioneer versions of these kind of like red mid-rangey decks. Well, not right? in my build, Dave. In my build, the three drop slots just soaked. But you are are you not running Torbrand and Chandra Torch of Defiance? But you can run this along twelve four drops isn't too many, Dave. Twelve four drops. It might be too many, Zach. <laughs> Uh, my two three record disagrees with you wait no it agrees with you crap yeah i mean i think this is a super powerful card and i i really like it i think it could slot into those i'll just be curious to see where it goes because torbrand is really cool it's really cool with the um the the goblin effects in particular you know attacking with a one one that does three damage is pretty cool but on the other hand if you happen to get this out with torbrand you're gonna attack with a three four that does five damage and, and then that, if it hits, does five more. Right, that just lava axe. 
<laughs> so, I mean, it's it's an interesting card. I think that the the option to have it draw cards is really fascinating as well. I sort of originally when I saw this was like, well, I don't think I would ever pick to do the light up the podium effect when it gets targeted by a spell. But I, I guess you really can do that if you want to and just leave it uh, leave it up till the end of your next turn. That's a that's a long time. Yeah, no, absolutely. And like, say you get some removal in there and it's just like, hey, by the way, I can cast this lightning strike whenever I want to. Not that I would play that card personally, but you could cast lightning strike. It blows my mind that lightning strike is starting to see play in, in Pioneer. I think it's awesome, actually. But uh, hey, you don't you don't have to do anything you don't want to, Zach. Play this. Play more four drops instead of a two drop. Twelve four bolt. drops. OK, yeah. everybody, I'm going to show up in a dump. Not a 5-0 dump, a city dump with a whole 60 full of 12 drops. There you go. I, for one, love playing Lightning Strike. And whenever I cast it, I say, Bolt. <laughs> I do the same thing with Wizard's Lightning. Shane loves that. Yeah, Shane seems like he'd really like that. You just don't go strike? No, no, it's a Bolt. That's why I cast it. Well, I love that card, too. I, would, I, I hope that it sees some play. It's a cool design. Dave, what are you excited about? I have a big diatribe here. I've got a card to talk about. It's cool. It's an iconic card. It's a cool monster. But I think we need to talk about escape for a second first before we we go too much farther. Does that sound okay? Is that like an 80s synth band? Yeah, escape. I'm not familiar with any 80s bands called escape. No, me either. It was a no one. <clears throat> I think that's a I think you're thinking of erasure. Um, so uh, does anybody else just look at the escape mechanic and go what? What were they thinking? How about we start by explaining what it is? So what escape does is it allows you to recast a spell from your graveyard by spending an amount of mana in the escape cost while also exiling a certain amount of cards from your graveyard at the same time. So it's kind of this weird unholy combination of flashback delve and embalm Mm -hmm. because it brings back a creature or a spell or something like that but the thing that's really crazy about it is that when you pay the escape cost, it returns it to your graveyard. It doesn't exile after you after you use it or have some kind of token that takes the escape creature out of your graveyard and put a token into play instead. It's just a card that you can cast over and over and, and over again as long as you can still pay the costs. In my mind, it looks like this this mechanic is just like another busted payoff for playing in your graveyard. So I'm looking at you, Thought Scour, when I'm looking at, at escape cards. But it just blows my mind that they put together a mechanic that feels like it's a, such a high potential to have busted cards in it. So I'm going to talk about an escape card. But I think as spoiler season continues, and there's been things that have happened even today with with really flashy escape costs on them, I think we all need to look really hard at any card that has a low escape mana cost and a low number of cards to be with it, or a low escape mana cost and a high number of cards or a high escape mana cost and a low number of cards, because I think all of those imbalanced different versions of escape could lead to cards that are just worth playing. But Dave, I say the card you're talking about exiles eight cards worth escape. It cost. really does. What's up with that? So the card that I'm talking about is Ox of Agonis. And so I'm, I will read the, uh, the, the card itself here. Could have been a dragon. Could have been a dragon. Uh, the Ox of Agonis costs three colorless and two two red mana. It is a creature ox. It is a mythic rare. It's a 4-2. And the, t- the text says, when Ox of Agonis enters the battlefield, discard your hand, then draw three cards. And it has escape. The escape cost is two red red. Exile eight other cards from your graveyard. 
Ox of Agonis escapes with a plus one, plus one counter on it. So it comes back as a five, three. Oh, Lord. Just to clarify, the escape cost is just red, red. It's not four yes. mana. It's two mana. Two mana. Sorry. It is red, red. And exile eight card, the cards from your griever. That's part of the cost. Yes. Yeah. And that is that is the hard part about these cards is that I think a lot of people when they're evaluating escape cards are going, well, I'll have tons of ways to be able to do this. I'll always have cards in my graveyard to be able to pay the escape mana costs. <laughs> and I think it's like in modern, maybe you'll be able to do it in certain in certain um, decks in Pioneer or modern where you have a lot of cantrips, fetch lands, like things like that all help. But think about the difference between delve cards and how they're played in modern versus delve cards in Pioneer, right? Blue White Control only runs two dig through times because they don't really have enough gas to be able to pay for that delve cost on it don't you think they would love to run for dig through time they definitely would if they would have the cards in the graveyard but they just they just don't so part of the tricky thing here is making sure that you have cards that fill the graveyard now the thing that's really incentivizing about the ox of agonis of course is that the mana cost is so low as stan said is two red pips is what you are paying to to bring this back even though there's eight cards so when I look at this card, the first thing I thought was, wow, it's a reusable treasure cruise. <laughs> I just get to do it over and over and think? over again. I mean, I, I, this is what I'm saying. I said it. It's so a reusable like, treasure cruise. You're on like a desert island. Yep. Some people would see like a big drumstick or like some sort of like fudge sundae and you just see card advantage. Yep. That's me. Of course. You, you know me. Card advantage on this ox. <laughs> I do think that the shell that this goes into is going to be difficult and maybe counterintuitive to work out. And so uh, to be honest, I'm disappointed in the deck that this is turning up in and kind of brewers minds all over the world right now, because what I really want to do is like find a way to play a card like this for value in a blue red spells deck where I can use this to help discard my Phoenixes and have enough cantrips and, you know, red cheap spells to have the graveyard filled so I can bring this back multiple times and draw cards and discard cards to get more phoenixes and then attack really fast. What it's looking to me like is that people are super stoked for this card in Dredge. Easy way to get eight cards in the graveyard, right? Dredge twice, you have it. Yep. Sometimes you can do this on turn two. Why not? Yeah, and the, cre the, the super wild thing about it, of course, is that this card synergizes with itself because you discard you draw cards off of it so you can reactivate your dredgers that you didn't exile to pay for it and you get to discard more cards out of your hand to be able to pay the escape cost for this again if you want to or for another one because what you can do is use one of these to discard another ox to be able to play that one on the next turn so Dave, you mentioned that people are looking at this card for Dredge. I've been hearing Dredge come up in a lot of conversations surrounding Escape, but my question to you, don't you think this might be able to fit into Is It Phoenix? I mean, that Jeez. as I was saying earlier, that is what I would like for it to be. And I think the one thing that's really interesting about it is that when Treasure Cruise gets banned in Pioneer... What do you mean when? It's not going to happen. If. When... 
this gets banned in no Pioneer, way. when no it gets way. banned in Pioneer. I think that this is kind of like your answer to be able to have a card that still is a drawing engine that uses your leverages your graveyard as a resource that also helps you discard your phoenixes and you can strategic plan this into your graveyard then pop this to bring it back into play to get your phoenixes out of your hand so i think there is a lot of synergy there i just feel like the dredge shell looks so much more powerful and specifically dredge vine mm-hmm. is where i'm starting to see this dom from our uh from our slack shared a list today from the kind of dredge vine group and that looks really wild crab ox no crabs in this one apparently Oh, well, there's always crap somewhere. Um, I think, Dave, what I'm hearing from you is that is it Phoenix is your pet deck now. And that's sort of where it's at. And I feel like it will be good in Phoenix the same way Astrolabe was good in Scred. But it's just so much better in other shells that it's like, you, well, you could run it in Phoenix, but that's not how you're winning on turn three. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing that really disappoints me when I read this card is that I just really want it to be good on turn six, but it's, <laughs> but it's absurd on turn you and me two, both, buddy, you and me both. or, you know, or turn three, really, you know, I saw a line that Dom mentioned that was basically like with dredge, you know, you can get 10 or 12, 15 cards in your, in your graveyard in the first couple of turns and then go ox grave caller, venge vine, venge vine, venge vine. If you get lucky and just go totally crazy out of the graveyard and you know what that just seems a lot better than than my whole thing so your thing is what end of your turn opt opt yeah my turn yeah exactly opt opt (laughs) strategic planning phoenix yeah question does escaping ox or any escape creature trigger one of the vengevine clauses i yeah, it's it's you may cast this card from your graveyard for its escape cost. So it's still casting a creature spell the same way that casting a grave crawler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can't counter it. You know, like it's it is a blowout if you counter one of these spells, definitely. But it also does trigger Vegivine. So yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's it's a blowout the same way they cast that countering someone's dre- uh, delve spell is a blowout, sure, right? Sure. So it's just kind of like something you have to keep Remain an eye on. Or why not? Yeah. Boom. Perfect. Never seeing that Gurmag Angler again. <laughs> But um, so I'm definitely going to buy a place out of these. I know they're mythics. They're not the cheapest thing in the world, but still pretty excited to just have them. I, maybe maybe I'll play Dredge since Shane has decided he's never going to play that deck again. But I'm really just going to try to try to make this thing work in Pioneer in, in Phoenix or some other kind of graveyard deck like that. But as you say that Shane has four of the Dredge mass drops on the way to his house. Yeah, exactly. What do you guys think about this card? I think it's powerful. I like that it comes out of the graveyard as a 5-3. I think that's um, almost understated because then it beats Stomp and Wild Slash. Um, as we mentioned on you know a couple episodes ago, anything that does more than three damage to creatures is kind of at a premium in Pioneer, especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this doesn't die to Fatal Push either, by the way. Yeah, there's no way this dies to Fatal Push. He's so big. It does die to Cast Down. Not all oxes are ox. legends, you know? Yeah. I wish it was Agonis's ox, but it's the ox of Agonis, which is like, whatever. I do like, and I wonder if this is a balancing mechanism, that the escape exile cost is usually, uh, it, it's less aggressive than delve costs were. Like looking yeah. at something like Gurmog Angler or Tassigur, um, even like Treasure Cruise now, it's kind of like laughable how easy it is to cast like some of those for just one mana. 
this will always be at least two mana. And I think, especially in a format like Pioneer, getting to those eight cards into your graveyard is something that becomes a, a real deck building requirement and not something that you can get incidentally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in Pioneer, you're if you get it twice, the game's like unreal, right? Typically it's once. I think in modern, two or three times is not impossible. Yeah. I mean, I think that in, in Pioneer, there's definitely the dredge the dredge deck in Pioneer that you could play. Dredgeless Dredge, if you would, please. Dredgeless Dredge. Yeah, you could play with uh, your Merfolk Secret Keeper and kind of go from go from there and fill your graveyard pretty fast as well. But um, powerful, sweet card that might change me to playing graveyard creature decks instead of graveyard creature spell decks. We'll see what happens. My turn. And unfortunately, I don't have a red card. Surprise, I have a white card. And... This probably won't come as too much of a surprise because it's been the focus of so much conversation surrounding the new Theros set, and that is Heliod Suncrowned, a card that I think is a must-discuss for any podcast worth its salt. Real MD. Especially one that focuses on Modern and Pioneer. (laughs) Heliod Suncrowned, two and a white for a legendary enchantment creature god, indestructible, as long as your devotion to white is less than five. Heliod is not a creature. Whenever you gain life, put a 1-1 counter on target creature or enchantment you control. And it also has the ability for one in a white. Another target creature gains lifelink until end of turn. Also, Heliod is a 5-5. But when but people, who cares about that? Yeah, when people talk about Heliod, it's not because of its stats. So I think when this card was spoiled, and maybe even still... It was among, if not the most hype cards within the MTG community, specifically because of its interaction with Walking Ballista. And together, it's because the cards can set up a turn three kill. What? Yeah, let me give you a brief synopsis of the combo. If you have both cards on the board and you give Walking Ballista lifelink, whenever you remove a counter to deal one damage, and bear in mind it has to be a 2-2 Ballista for this to work, whenever you take a counter off to deal one damage, You gain one life, triggering Heliod, putting a 1-1 counter back on Ballista, and you can repeat this an infinite number of times with only a single activation of Heliod. And what this really comes out to, long story short, is something akin to a Sahili Cat or Splinter Twin style infinite combo. If you can assemble pieces and you have enough mana, you just win on the spot. In the situations where you can't produce a 2-2 Ballista, You can also get the combo kill with a 1-1. If the Ballista started the turn on the play, you can activate Heliod, triggering lifelink, put a counter on Ballista, and then you combo off. You can also set up the combo if you gain life via another source. Radiant Fountain comes to mind. Food tokens are a thing. And the line for the turn three kill works like this. And if I'm not mistaken, this might be one of the only, if not the only turn three kill that will be available to us in Pioneer. Turn one. You play a green mana source and a one mana dork. Um, You can do this in modern too with Birds of Paradise or Noble Hierarch. In Pioneer, you would do it with Llanowar Elves or Elvish Mystic. Gilded Goose, in theory, is a dork, but is actually a bit too slow for the turn three kill because you want to be able to use that dork repeatedly. On turn two, you play another land. A white source if you have it, but at this point, it's still not really required if you have a white producing dork. And on turn two, you now have three mana, which you can probably use to play Heliod. And it's generally a good idea to play Heliod if you're concerned that your opponent may have removal for a 1-1 Ballista at this point. Or if the coast is clear, you can play 1-1 Ballista and use your extra mana for another Dork. Then on turn three, 
the most important turn in Pioneer, all of a sudden, you play a land. At this point, you have to have at least one white source, preferably two. If you have your Heliod in play on turn three, you can use your two mana, keeping a white source open to cast a 1-1 Ballista. Then you play a Radiant Fountain to immediately add a counter to the Ballista. Use your free white source and Radiant Fountain to activate Heliod, and you go infinite from there. Or if you already had the Ballista in play, you now need two white sources to both cast Heliod, play Radiant Fountain, trigger Ballista, activate, kill. So I think. Wow, what a mouthful. Yeah, it's a mouthful. If you need to re listen, just hit that rewind 15 seconds button a couple times on your podcast app. Boy, isn't it nice that Once Upon a Time is not in this format in Pioneer anymore? Because, oh boy. Oh, I'm so glad. With the introduction of this combo, we now have a new Splinter Twin style deck in Pioneer. The previous Sahili Cat, of course, was banned. And because it only requires white mana for the combo, unlike Sahili, which required three colors, though that never seemed to be a problem, the shell surrounding Heliod is perhaps more flexible. And early iterations of the deck that exploit this combo I've seen have been in Selesnya colors and sometimes in Bant. Uh, the Bant decks will occasionally splash blue for time to very time reveler to provide some instant speed protection. You also get counter spells and sideboard cards. So that's the combo. Zach, I know I see your gears moving. You're already thinking about how to disrupt this monstrosity. Right. Uh, something that can happen sometimes is an opponent can go, okay, I have the combo, I go off. And you go, okay, no, wait, walk me through it. Because there's often a step or a moment where if you can play a card right then, it shuts it off. So with the things that Stan mentioned, there is a moment where after they remove the first counter and the triggers on the stack, if you have... Uh, you know, a wild slash, a stomp, any sort of interaction, or even a fatal push, walking blista zero when it's on the battlefield. If they remove that last counter in response, it dies because it's zero zero. So they do get off the two pings and, you know, probably gain two life, but blista's gone at that point. And of course, as the game scales, if blista comes down at a higher number, it might be a little harder to interact in that way because then they might be able to remove a counter in response to your spell and then blista gets too big to kill. But this combo is cool. And I like that when it's early, it's not hard to mess with. Granted, it's not hard if you're playing red, but I am. But even in other colors, there are ways to interact and to do things. So, you know, being able to counter Heliod, very good. Being able to, you know, destroy early mana dorks, taking off tempo, very good. It's not some sort of ironclad, you know, oh, hey, I go off and you just have to watch me. There's plenty of times to do something and stop the opponent. So I think... Quite frankly, this is a pretty cool combo. I will see if maybe, you know, I play against it a bunch of the LGS and come back on the pod and just have nothing nice to say. But I think for right now, I like what it represents. I think it's interesting that you say that, Zach. I feel like the things that you just outlined make me feel like it's probably not really going to be that good. I guess I'll go on record and say that I'm the person who's a little bit doubting. Because I can beat it. It's not good. Yeah. Sorry, Zach. Oh, not you personally. So, oh, red players everywhere. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, red players. Now, I just feel like that particular window that you pointed out where once someone takes the first counter off, you get to interact with the ballista and take it out is is a much wider window than any of these other combos really had be- before. And um, it's a much easier thing to interact with than like Felidar Guardian was where you, you're, there really wasn't any way to kill that other than if you managed to revolt a fatal push at instant, you know, there wasn't any other way to do it at instant speed. So 
you, you could kill Sahili in response to the down tick, right? When it's targeting the Guardian, you can, you know, bolt or stomp a Sahili or something. Dave, I think you also might change your tune as soon as someone plays this and a Teferi Time Reveler against you, and then you try to tap <laughs> your mana and respond at instant speed, and MTGO doesn't let you. I mean, I'm I'm always changing my tune when someone plays Teferi Time Reveler against me, but I just feel like that's like another piece, right? And so all of a sudden we're on like turn five, and maybe I'm outrunning you at that point, and mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I'm okay with Pioneer having this as their version of the Vizier combo. Like, I don't think that combo is broken in modern. There's plenty of ways to interact with that as well. There's a little more consistency with the tutors, with Eldamry's call and whatnot, and the devastation, the promise of, finale of, the big show. Yeah, finale of devastation, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think that, you know, format should have a combo deck like this that's sort of like, hey, I'm doing a thing, and if your deck doesn't have interaction, you lose. Like, okay, cool. Deck should be punished for not interacting. But it shouldn't be super resistant to interaction as well. I think there's a fine line to be in between. Yeah. You know, Dave, to push back a little bit, and I'm not saying that this is the new best deck in Pioneer or Modern for that matter, but when I see this card, Heliod, and the potential combo, to me, it just screams like a strategy that is guaranteed to get a trophy on week one. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Oh, yeah. You're going to have so many smart, skilled players testing it out, and event- inevitably, someone's just going to get the 5 probably multiple people. I don't know if it's going to be quite as prolific as Stoneforge Mystic was on week one of its unban, but I mean, people are definitely going to start playing this. And I think if you're someone who is going to participate in a big modern tournament as soon as the set comes out or is playing on Magic Online, I think it benefits you to kind of be aware of what the combo is, how it operates, and and the package that people might be playing with it. Yeah, I definitely think it's good to be aware, for sure. To echo what Zach said, I'm, I'm also pleased to see both a new Splinter Twin style combo in Pioneer, but especially happy to see White getting such a powerful card and effect in an era when it feels like green keeps getting pushed. And it's really welcoming to me to see White getting some more powerful cards that are actually aggressively costed, which is, I think, what makes Heliot so good. It's only three mana. You can potentially cast it on turn two. Speaking of aggressively costed White cards, Stony Silence is another way to shut this combo down in Modern, not in Pioneer. Unless it is in Pioneer. It's not in Pioneer. No, but but Blight Beetle is a way to shut this combo down in Pioneer. Two mana, one, one, one in a black. Opponent's creatures can't get one, one counters. So for what it's worth, I actually think that this combo might be a little better in Modern than it is in Pioneer. <laughs> because You're saying that for the clicks. I am saying that for the clicks. <laughs> Just because there's a couple of extra tools that are available for you to use the card. Let me Let me name some cards mm-hmm. for you. Ranger Captain of Eos. Great card. It's a pretty good card that searches up Walking Ballista and also makes it so that your opponent can't, can't cast spells in a given window. You have Collected Company that lets Great you Coco into Heliod and also um, and also Spike Feeder, which is a different infinite, ma- infinite life combo that you can run that you can hit both off of Collected Company. You can hit Ranger Captain and Heliod off of Collected Company. And then also you have access to Once Upon a Time in Modern. And so the problem here is that I think that this deck might just be not as good as the Druid combo deck in some ways, but there's a lot of powerful stuff going on with this particular shell. And I'm just looking at, at a list that was shared in our, in our Slack by Justin, who's one of the, one of the members of the dive down nation. Um, You know, nobody's gotten to try any of these decks quite yet, but that one feels like there's a lot more tools to make it happen than Pioneer kind of has available to it right now. 
So that's how we feel about Heliod. Let's take a break from these monocolored cards. There are some gold cards in this set that have caught our eye. And Zach, you've got the first one. This one really goes out to Shane. Shane Beeps. He can't be here with us. I believe he's on some sort of diplomatic mission somewhere. But if he was here, he would have picked this card. Pokernos, Unchained. Two, black and a green. That's four CMC. For a 0-0 legendary creature zombie hydra? That can't be good. No, wait. You die. But wait a minute. Pulkernos on his battlefield with 6 1-1 counters on it? And it escapes with 12 1-1 counters on it? Its escape cost is 4, black and a green. Exile 6 other cards. But wait, there's more text even? If damage would be dealt to Pulkernos while it has a plus 1 plus 1 counter on it, prevent that damage and remove that many plus 1 plus 1 counters. In the past, it's been templated with remove a counter and prevent damage. This one prevents damage and removes counters equal to damage dealt. And then a final ability. Why not? It's a push mythic. One, a black and a green. That's three. Pokernos fights another target creature. So that is a lot of text. <laughs> it's just the longest. Sometimes a 6-6 six, six for four. Yeah. I didn't think they can make a card with more text than Questing Beast. And then in the next set, here it is. It's yeah. the same card, but with more, more text. Well, hold on. I believe this one is facing a different way in the art. Ah, yes. Why is Questing Beast not a Hydra? Do you see that art? It's got three heads. Not every... Every Hydra has three heads. And everything with three heads is a Hydra. Good to know. The Hound of Athreos is not even a Hydra. It's a Hound. Yeah, what? Are Cerberus Hydras nowadays? You got me. Cerberus? You got me. So, on rate, four mana for 6-6. Would we cast that as a vanilla card? No. I mean, it's huge, and it, it can fight stuff. It's... And... Yeah. It has recursion, and when it escapes, it's a 12-12. I mean, I think on rate, getting a 6-6 six, six is definitely like... I mean, it so, shows how jaded we are these days by by creature power and toughest that we're like, yeah, four for a 6-6 six, six is just fine. It's just okay. You know, it doesn't have trample. It doesn't have death touch. It's got none of that stuff, but... Um, it can fight, though, with an activated ability. Right. I mean, yeah, people like this card. People online really like this card, and like... I feel like... It's definitely maybe not calling it the next questing beast is not a hundred percent correct as they're different cards in a lot of ways. And you aren't just playing this at the top of your curve in your green aggro deck. This has a lot more going for it and is a more complicated card, but people like this card. My personal initial take, I think if this sees play in eternal formats, it would have to be because the recursion ability can be used consistently. Yeah. Otherwise, I don't think people are playing a 6-6 six, six that fights and shrinks by itself, unless they can cast it twice, if not three times in a game. And, I mean, maybe you're playing more than one. You know, we talk about these escape cards as if it's just the one in our deck, but you can play up to four. <laughs> this one is legendary, though, so hey. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I do think that when, you know, I was talking about escape earlier and how the, you know, looking for the ones where the mana cost versus the card cost is out of whack with each other for things that are kind of valuable. In this one, it's six CMC escape and six cards. Um, I, I think that though, what this looks to me like is like, you can play this on turn four, you fight something on turn five, and then you replay it on turn six and it's even bigger. And maybe that's kind of how you get there. You know what I mean? Like you're kind of like cracking fetch lands and playing removal spells and just trying to fill your sure. yard. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, it's back already. So I feel like part of the plan with this card is to try to play it twice as fast as possible, which 
kind of makes sense with that kind of middling cost and uh, on both halves of the escape. So that being said, do you think this has the chops for modern? Because I feel like we're all saying, meh. I mean, what's interesting to me is that it's easier to fill your graveyard in modern without it being the focus of your deck. Though a card like this, I think it needs to be a deck that's based on building your graveyard. There's also better payoffs in modern though, right? That's, I mean, that's the other side of the coin, right? On the one hand, it's easier f- to get all the value out of this card. But on the other hand, is this really how you want to be spending your mana in modern? Like, are the mid-range decks such as Jund or just The Rock, is this what they want out of their four mana slot? It can't be. I mean, they have Bloodbraid Elf now, right? Exactly. And that is a 3-2 haste that sometimes is also red in six or sometimes also is a bolt or is a lily. God, I hate that card. Yeah. You know what I like about this in modern, though? No. It's Oko proof. Make my six six into an elk. It is now a nine nine. T- Very good. Is it my turn? Take now? that. I mean, that's yeah. not a terrible <laughs> point, actually, as far as like where things are right now. And like it can fight an Urza and live. It lives as a one one, but it lives. And also it can fight a Titan and just trade. I think the biggest question to answer will be whether this card can exist in a deck that both ramps into it on turn three and fills the graveyard. And I think for something like Pioneer, that will be especially important. Where Green cards in Pioneer are so often built around that turn one mana dork ramp. And to me, in my initial read, those two elements are sort of at odds with one another. Are you spending mana on dorks or are you spending mana on, say, tier wear finders and stitcher suppliers to fill the yard? And can you really afford to do both in a single deck? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. It really depends on how many payoffs there are or, or how much synergy there is because this isn't worth it by itself right like this is a good part of a package but i don't think this is you know good as what your deck's main plan is mm-hmm. so like if there are other similar effects or maybe we see some other you know good graveyard fillers in this set or an escape card with a really low cost of exiling from the graveyard like Dave was mentioning that could be good where you get this down early exile then get pokernos while you're filling up your graveyard I think Pioneer has a lot more viability for this shell, and I would not be surprised to be facing this down. I mean, it is terrible against a lot of the red stuff because of the damage clause, and like Glorybringer walks all over this nonstop, mm-hmm. but just because you're weak to red doesn't mean you're not a viable deck. Yeah. I think it's one of those cards that just feels like huge, great value. How are we going to give this a home that makes sense to make it really shine? I mean, the fight ability isn't even always good either right it's three mana it's a lot it is kind of costly yeah it also dies to fatal push now revolted fatal push <laughs> which is a total totally different thing in pioneer though <laughs> i'm gonna kick this hydra off a cliff so you know how i said i'm confident that heliod is going to appear in a trophy list probably on week one i don't know about you guys but i don't really share that confidence for this card though i think there's a lot of eyeballs on it i think it will require a little more work to prove its worth Oh, sure. I'm not surprised, but I'm, I also am not looking for it. So either way, it will make sense to me. I, I will see if it continues to trophy, then it's like, what? But I think it's more likely to fade away for a little bit and maybe appear down the line somewhere because this is a good payoff and this is a solid card. But I feel like it's like I said, it's part of a package and doesn't entice the package. Yeah, I I think the last point that I want to make on this, and it's looking back on something we learned in Modern Horizons, and more specifically something we kind of missed when we were evaluating Modern Horizons, is interset synergies. 
And I'll be curious if in the next few days, you know, as we start to see the complete Theros set, which we do not have today, if we're going to find something like Stitcher Supplier or something like Satire Wayfinder that is a cheap way to fill the yard. And if we get more copies of that, Legal and Pioneer, I think my confidence in this specific card will go up. My my confidence in like lots of escape cards is going to go up if that happens though, right, as well. It's already pretty high. Yeah, they're already high, but like if there was a good way to mill into your into your graveyard in Pioneer or more good ones, I think it's a lot of options get opened. Because otherwise it's a non-existent limited format that's just a plan for constructed or they'll need to find some way to support it in limited right right because people will be drafting escape cards people will be drafting. i mean that's a great point is like where are the escape enablers in the set i don't know if i've seen them quite yet i could be wrong but let's let's see yeah where are the self mill cards well as we all know eat to extinction allows you to mill the top card of your library <laughs> sometimes oh great all right that's enough Black, green, mid-range, baloney. Let's go back to my favorite style of cards, shall we? Please. (laughs) I'm excited for this, too. Yeah, my second pick for this episode is a counterspell. No, it can't can't be. It's true. Believe it. Whirlwind Denial. Two and a blue for an instant. For each spell and ability your opponents control, counter it unless its controller pays four. And the flavor text? No, no, and... No. Um, uh, Brain Blast. Does this counter mana abilities? No. Why not? I don't think anything can stop a mana ability, so. Doesn't it go on the stack? No. No, mana does not use the stack. Oh, I'm so bad at this game. Okay. Not a level one judge, that's for sure. I'm barely a player. So one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this card today, apart from the fact that I love countering spells, is I'm thinking back on a recent episode. It was, I think, two episodes ago where Dave kind of noted that three CMC counterspells are perfectly viable in Pioneer, and it's up to you to decide which flavor of upside you want, whether it's Surveil, whether it's gaining three life, etc. So if we're kind of operating under a threshold that right now in Pioneer, three CMC is what you're spending on a counterspell, I think this checks off that first box. Fair? Yeah, I think it's fair. Okay. Where I'm skeptical, however is that I think 3CMC does, in general, offer stronger counters, especially for main deck blue X strategies. And it doesn't really solve the problem that I had mentioned earlier, which is Pioneer is missing more aggressively costed CMC counterspells at two or you know something other than Spell Spears ones. at one. Yeah. So just off the cuff, what I'm imagining that uh, this card could do I think it could uh, actually be maybe a sideboard card at one or two copies, especially for control mirrors. I love this being the last card you play after a counter war. I love this being the second spell you cast after a spell pierce. I think blue white might be able to play this in pioneer and modern, maybe something like blue moon or blue white can take this out of the board to back up a force of negation. So you can leave mana up for this after using force of negation on something. And if nothing else, it's a great way to play around Veil of Summer because it'll counter both Veil and whatever target you initially try to hit before your opponent casts Veil of Summer. Yeah, I I think that what's interesting to me here is you have to think about this card, at least in those purposes, in those roles in combination with um, Mystic Dispute Mm -hmm. or Mystical Dispute. 
because it's kind of like, well, would I rather have just the one CMC card sometimes that doesn't counter multiple things in a counter war, or do I want this card? And that's tough because I think that what you really need is sometimes to have the ability counter come up as something that you want in order to make this card uh, kind of want to be in your sideboard. But that's just my thought. It's worth noting that it's all abilities, not just activated abilities. So it can hit triggered. Sometimes that timing can be weird because some cards will then trigger again after you counter, depending on what the card itself is. But in general, this has a lot of fringe utility. I think it's definitely sideboard, but I would just love to play this against a storm player after they have their count up and they tick it and go. And it's just, oh, well, no. And sometimes they don't get to come back. And that's very fringe. And like something like weather the storm might also just be enough there. But I think that the fact that it's any ability opens this card up for a lot of cool stuff. Oh, here's here's two places that I want to play this card. In, in your basement? Definitely in my basement <laughs> and online in my office where I'm enjoying the heat. And no, there's two decks I'm thinking of in particular. One is, um, one is Mono Green Ramp because it can actually counter Ulamog and get rid of the triggers there. And the other place is Hydroid Crisis because mm-hmm. it can actually counter uh, the cast trigger, which is inexplicably on Hydroid Crisis. Uh, now, I know that Blue-Green Devotion isn't really a deck at the moment, but it's always out there looming and could come back as a shell. Um, and this stops Hydroid Crisis pretty much cold as well, because they lose their draw and gain life ability and also lose the card itself. And so for me, when I look at this card, I feel like that's what it's for, in a lot of ways, and I think specifically this card is maybe like an escape valve for Hydrate Crisis and Standard. But when you look at Pioneer, there are definitely cards that have cast triggers that I would like to play this against. I mean, look at like people play Thought Knots here in right. in uh in Pioneer, you know what I mean? And that's that kind of feels like a drag to play have to play a three-mana counter against Thought Knots here, but it does stop you from losing the card. Stops Emrakul too. Wow, this is fun. Dave, that's a good catch. Did I just totally misdescribe Thought Knots here, by the way? Yeah, Thought Knots an ETB. My bad. Thought Knot is an ETB, but... Um, but you still can't counter that ability. Yeah, exactly. They have to choose which one they want to pay. <laughs> you know, Zach, your point about Storm is interesting to me because I think at, when Flusterstorm entered Modern, there was some conversation about whether that being anti-Storm tech and then Storm started running it in a sideboard. And I like this over Flusterstorm so much that I wonder if it's a strictly better Flusterstorm for modern, since it can counter any spell and not just instants and sorceries. Oh, sure. I also just want to take a moment to talk about the difference between a four mana tax and something like Mystical Dispute, which only has a three mana tax. Because my knee jerk reaction was counter target spell unless this controller pays four, more than half the time is as good as a hard counter. Oh, yeah. I mean, what, big mana decks are really the only decks that are going to be able to pay that, right? And if so, that's their whole turn. Yeah, I also don't think they will often play Ulamog and wait for 14 to play Ulamog or something like that, too. So, Look, if nothing else, it's an uncommon. It's going to be cheap, and there's basically no cost of testing it out online or in paper. I know I picked it, but if if I had to predict what's going to happen with this card, my prediction is pretty conservative. Like I said, one or two of in some sideboards since there's really no added cost to playing this at the end of a counter war or after your opponent has stormed off or I don't know, maybe your opponent cast an Ulamog. I, for my part, I think I, when I first read this, I was kind of like, no way. And then I thought about it some more and I was like, yeah, I think it could have some nice utility in different spots. And I, I feel like it's a, um, 
it's a good option to have as your as part of your counter suite, depending on how things go in the meta. All right. So now to wrap up the episode, we want to do a quick, almost lightning round, hot take, shoot from the hip style reaction to a couple powerful titans that were spoiled today on Monday. Yeah, these cards were a bit shocking, I think. Uh, they just, you know, we've just had a couple of hours to think about them and look at them. So we don't have a bunch of notes together yet. But two cards were spoiled, and they are Croxa Titan of Death's Hunger and Uro Titans of Nature's Wrath. Um, Croxa is a single black and a single red mana, and Uro is one blue green. And they do some wild stuff. Am I right? Yeah, they've got some similar templating. Almost as if as they're part of a cycle. Yeah, makes me feel like we might be waiting for one more that's really, really broken coming up next. But I'll read Croxa really quickly to, to start. So Croxa Titans of Death's Hunger is a 6-6 six, six for a single red and a single black mana. Unfortunately, you're probably not ever going to only pay that much for it because the first line of text on here is when Croxa enters the battlefield, sacrifice it unless it escapes. And then it says, whenever Croxa enters the battlefield or attacks, each opponent discards a card, then each opponent who didn't discard a non-land card this way loses three life. And then it has escape, black, black, red, red, exile, five other cards from your graveyard. Very close to the templating of the old Titan cycle, actually, when you really look at it, like Grave Titan had an effect when it came into play and when it attacks. And so I kind of like that they they kept that as part of the story of these. Um, same thing with Uro, but um, so that's Croxa. And then Uro, Titan of Nature's Wrath, is one blue green for a 6 6. And it also says, when Uro enters the battlefield, sacrifice it unless it escaped. And then it says, whenever Uro enters the battlefield or attacks, you gain three life and draw a card. Then you may put a land card from your hand onto the battlefield. And it also has escape. The escape is green, green, blue, blue. Exile five other cards from your graveyard. Wow. Why? <laughs> So, knee-jerk reactions. I'll start. The red-black one really jumped out to me for a number of reasons, particularly for modern. I like that you can target it with unearth. And when you do that, the way I'm reading this is you can often turn your unearths into extra copies of Lightning Bolt. Or kind of like Thoughtseize, sort of. No, maybe not Thoughtseize, but like, uh, yeah, a discard card. Mm-hmm. Makes me wonder whether my old... Dear friend, Red Black Skelemental might be back on the menu. I know that's one one thing I will be testing and playing around and keeping an eye out for in week one of Eldrain or week one of Theros. So it's sort of an interesting like next level effect because I, I didn't understand why this might put Skelemental back on the menu. Can you help explain that to listeners? Because they're not directly related. Yeah. So one of the things I like about this is that it's good in the graveyard. You you basically want it in the graveyard. And as a result, it's a good target to hit off of your cards that are feeding the graveyard. Um, something like Stitcher Supplier, maybe something like Seasoned Pyromancer. Like I mentioned, it works well with Unearth in that it can be targeted with Unearth. Um, and then, you know, even if you can't pay the escape cost, being able to do an extra three points of damage or continue to strip your opponent's hand, I have a theory, might be enough upside to make it playable. Yeah, I think that totally makes sense. And it it fits into that kind of like redundancy thing that we talked about earlier, which is it's a powerful, not powerful, it's like a medium level low mana play if you just have to cast it. Then it goes in the graveyard and comes back later, but it's also redundant to Skelemental as something that you want to get down in that in that graveyard. So you have eight cards that you want to get in the graveyard instead of only four. Right. 
I think this red-black card, Kroxa, is very good. Is very good in the Punisher shell that I've been talking about. And wonder if it pushes it into a red-black direction. This is a little bit of wild speculation, but this would be the third giant that we are considering. This Bone Crusher and the new one that we just talked about earlier, Tectonic. So, I mean, maybe a giant lord could be cool. It'd have to be pretty low cost to be efficient, but you're going to catch me in 2020 playing giant tribal Punisher prison and just O4-ing every tournament I go to. That's amazing. I like it. It's good. I mean, I only four mana for the escape is a little worrisome. Five other cards is real, but its ability is ETB or attacks, like Dave said, and this card has me worried because any card that I think is fun in a sort of giant tribal shell is probably going to be broken somewhere else by someone's murder. This card has you more worried than Uro, Titan of Nature's Wrath? I don't even want to talk about that card. Why is it so close to the same name as Oko and also Blue Green? Why are they Why are they doing that to us? Oh, I'm sorry. URO and UKO are too close for you or OKO. God, I just hate this game, Dave. Dave, read URO for us. I'll read him one more time. So, Oh, did you read URO? I I did, but we can give a little refresher. So the attack or ETB trigger is you gain three life and draw a card, and you may put a land card from your hand onto the battlefield. Did they learn nothing from Risen Reef? It seems like a lot better than the discard thing from the other one. (laughs) You're saying that life (laughs) gain, mana acceleration, and card draw is better than a Punisher effect, Dave? Is that what you're telling me right now? Yes. Oh, that's true. That's much better. I mean, I hate to sound like I'm beating a dead horse, but I just love that both of these cards can be targeted with Unearth. And I think that's a card in Modern that didn't really get to see the light of day before the format got shook up for you know, and and pushed out a powerful, cheap effect. And yeah, I don't know. Like, can these cards be good without the escape cost? What What do you mean? They need it because they die on ETB, right? Yes. Right, right. But I'm saying like, are are you ever trying to cast these cards just for them to hit the battlefield apropos of their impending and immediate death? I think in like the deck I had mentioned, I would have no problem playing this on turn two, but it would be to eventually then escape it. Right. So like, I, I think this is, you know, these are perfectly fine turn two and three plays. If you would then have a plan where like, oh, hey, I did that. And now here's the extra value. Sort of like, once again, the card that I keep talking about all the time, Bonecrusher Giant, like the stomp isn't always amazing, but being able to stomp and then play a creature is huge. So being able to play this and then later escape it, not quite the same, I understand, but still very powerful. I think it's very close to that kind of play pattern, but you just have to put this in a deck that enables it. And as a result, the effect that it has is commensurately way more powerful, right? I mean, right. but these are cards that I'm like, yeah, we're going to play these with Stitcher Supplier all the time. You know what I mean? And I wonder if if both of them go in decks with with that card or those type of cards, or I guess Uro probably goes more naturally with Merfolk secret keeper, but they're all things that make me feel like what is the shell that is really going to just be feed in the graveyard in this new pioneer with Theros or this new modern with Theros. And I guess what you end up with in both of those is some kind of dredge variant, you know, or some kind of graveyard reanimation value deck, some kind of monster, would you say? Yeah, I would delete that immediately. I feel like these are cards that like we haven't had enough time to really think about 
but they're super powerful and we'll be watching them over the next the next week. We're probably going to do a bunch more spoilers on next week's episode as well because there's probably a third of the set left to spoil. And so maybe we'll double back on these and see if we can figure out the right shell that they go in right now. But these cards are just super scary at moment. Well, there you have it, folks. A new set has come out. New cards for us to get upset about. We're excited to hear which new Theros card is the first to get people to start talking about bands. Will it be Sweet Oblivion? Will it be Heliod? Each to extinction. Tune into the Dive Down every week to find out. And if you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. Of course, if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review if you like our show. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or just pick our brain about something in Modern or Pioneer, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon. Patreon.com slash the dive down gets you access to our super secret Slack channel, custom pins, custom tokens, custom playmats. We got it all. I'll call you on your birthday if you ask nicely once. Also, you can subscribe to manatraders.com with the coupon code the dive down all one word to get 15% off your first three months of renting magic online cards shout out to manatraders for sponsoring our show as always special thanks to the bands nowhere and space blood for letting us use their music and until next week get out there and escape the underworld I'm barely a player.